I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. I know from the calmness of my voice that it doesn't seem that I've had the career that I did. I spent 25 years in the corporate world, you know, dealing with corporate politicians, senior executives, backstabbers, working externally with CEOs and heads of states and politicians. And I can tell you it's tough. I think everyone knows when we go to work that the big part of our burden, if you want, is not really the job itself. It's all of those politics and meanness, if you want, the way things are between the people, between those power seekers, between those fame seekers. I think this really is what gets most of us down. And it is really tiring. It's really draining in so many ways, but it is the reality of a lot of what's happening in our world today, not just at work, but in society at large, as today's guest calls it in his latest book, we live in a world that has turned mean. And his latest book, explores the the timeless question, really, but very timely question for leadership. The book is called The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World Turned Mean, and basically explores the idea of maybe being a fair, decent leader is also a good way of achieving success. He talks about stories such as the story of Satya, the new CEO of Microsoft, who transformed Microsoft into a powerhouse again after Steve Ballmer greatly diminished the value of the company through his very pushy, very hard-charging and over-aggressive tactics. He talks about the qualities that make a leader fair but firm and uses many other examples to explain from politics and from business to explain that fairness is also a possible path to success. My guest today is David Budanis, who writes about a variety of topics. One of his uh, very first books, The Secret House, is a very interesting investigation of all of the things that we don't really see in our everyday life. He wrote E equals MC squared, which was adopted by PBS to become a documentary, Einstein's Big Idea. Very interesting if you want to see it. And he is the Royal Society Science Book of the Year prize winner. David got lots of positive reviews for his new book, The Art of Fairness. One of my favorite is what the Financial Times wrote. It says, this book is more than a business book. It's a prime for anyone fed up with the prevailing meanness of society and looking for inspiration on how to be better and fix things for others. So I am one of those, and I've been waiting for a very long time to speak to David Budanis about how can fairness become the right path to create success and have an impact on our world today. David Budanis.
first of all, finally, finally, we make it. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. So for those of you listening, David and I have had uh, three consecutive attempts of getting together and facing technical challenges. I normally say everything worthwhile is worth waiting for. So when I get some challenges on the way, I go like, oh, this is absolutely worth it. Life is making it a little bit difficult. And so it's going to be a joyful conversation. And I know from my follow up on your work that it is going to be a joyful conversation because you, you seem to be, I don't know how to say this. You seem to be living in a different world. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, it's wonderful to actually think that we can have a success while we actually are good people, but it's not the common thing. I mean, I say this with a ton of respect. When I was approached to join Google, that was 2006. I was at the time sort of financially independent, honestly tired of the corporate world. And I didn't know if I really wanted another corporate job. And then I went to one of my friends, Nawawi, and I asked him and I said, what do you think I should do? I mean, I'm a nice guy. I'm not made for the corporate world. And he said, that's exactly why you should be there. You should show the whole world that you can be a good person and at the same time succeed and make a difference. So it was, of course, not my only objective, but one of my main objectives in life was to actually try and succeed without being sucked into doing things, uh, you know, the normal way, if you want. Now, your work, your first uh, book is amazing. The world testified to that. It was a New York Times bestseller. Can nice guys finish first? Great question, to be honest. And then now, The Power of Decency in a World Turned Mean. The title is so gripping. And the concept, honestly, is so needed. And I have been looking forward to the time we spent together because I'm with you. I think decency and being a good person really goes a very long way. But I also agree with you that our world has turned mean. Totally. Can I ask, without going into details or naming names, when you were at that large corporation and you wanted to, you know, you were hired, you wanted to have that approach, could you like talk me through? So I'm, I'm only learning about this from the outside. I interview people, I read books, I read documents, I talk to more people. What happened when there was somebody else who tried to either get past you or do you down in a sort of Machiavellian or bad way? Could you talk about how a decent person can defend or be aware of that sort of stuff? Well, I have to tell you openly, I studied the, one of my favorite authors of all time is the 48 Laws of Power, Robert Greene. And it's basically an explanation of the Machiavellian way of, of really gaining power. Not that I have ever used any of the 48 rules, but that I actually was aware of them helped me tremendously in my corporate career because it's not a secret that a lot of people will use shortcuts and power tricks if you want to get their way. So being aware of them meant that I was alert. I was aware when something was not going decently, if you want, right? My response on the other hand was quite the opposite. I had one simple rule in my entire corporate career, which was I will have no enemies, zero enemies. I will have no one mark me at the top of his list of crosshairs and attempt to take me down simply because I'm not at war. What would happen if you weren't being mean to somebody, but two people had interesting ideas for projects and you only had the funds for one of them and you had to disappoint another person? 
Yeah, very straightforward. We would have a conversation very openly where I say the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And I would explain openly that this is the fund we have. And this is from a priorities point of view, tough life, but life is a question of priorities. And in many ways, I would actually explain how that person next time can create a project that becomes a top of the priority list. And you know, what else could be? I mean, one of my favorite things, it's interesting that this is a conversation about me, but I'll come to you in a minute. One of my very well-known things is that when I traveled across Google globally, we have that concept of fireside chats. And so people would want every office I would go to, even if when they didn't report to me anymore, they would ask for a fireside chat. And I was known to be the one, one of the executives that you can ask the tough questions to simply because I never repeated what the corporate told me blindly. Okay. So I had, I had this very simple approach of ask me the tough questions. And if I know the answer, I will answer. If I don't, I will openly say, I don't know the answer to that. And if my answer differed from the position of the corporate, I would say, can I please skip this question? Because my position is different from the position of the corporate, right? And by the way, the corporation wants A, B, and C. These are their reasons for wanting A, B, and C. And I am here to serve the good of the bigger community. My position could be different because I have different perspectives, different points of view, but I choose, even though my position is different, to sometimes follow my leaders because I trust that they make those choices for the right reasons. And because I always had those three possible answers, either a good answer or I don't know and I don't mind that I don't know, or I can't tell you that I agree, but I'm still here and I'm still committed. I think uh, that made people open up very, very much to my, to asking me the tough questions, to having the difficult conversations and believe it or not. Because of that, I was one of the most informed executives of the underlying currents of what was happening in the organization. This is one of the big things that really came out in the, in the, in the Art of Fairness book, that the people who have your attitude, they get good information transfer because other people can be very powerful, but you're terrified. If you've ever had a, a horrible boss, you know, some other organization, you're not going to tell them the truth. I mean, maybe you can tell them the truth if you're willing to quit and have enough money, but most people aren't in that position. So what yeah. you describe about and it makes you knowledgeable is great. By the way, the other people who didn't act like that, other senior people, and again, not necessarily that firm at other places you've been with, so not names. But I've always wondered when they take that different approach, as opposed to those three totally sensible answers you described, do they take that different approach because they thought it through and realized, ooh, they, they can't tell the truth or because they've never thought it through, they've just been socialized that way? What's the reason? I think fakeness is a big part of our world today, don't you? In reality, we're rarely ever saying what's inside us, even rarely ever aware of what's inside us. I mean, sometimes people just repeat what the boss is saying because this is what they think is supposed to be said. They haven't thought it through themselves. They're not there to make those introspections, if you want. Others are simply there to make a salary. And I respect that, by the way. Some people go to what most people I actually sometimes tell people openly, you need to be very clear about the idea of, are you there to make a difference or are you make, there to make a living? Because if you're there to make a living, declare that to yourself first and openly declare it to others. Because in every corporate, there are quite a few 
thousands of people that are there to make a living too. They like you for who you are. And if you ask them to come and join your team, they'll come and join your team because they'll know they're protected because you're there too, you're trying to make a living. And these are the guys that will not pick a fight, they will not take a stand, they will not try to change things. And that's absolutely fine as well. I think the question in my mind is a question of transparency, if you ask me. Yes, uh, so they're transparent about it. The yeah. people who, who want to like make a difference and hopefully a, a decent difference or have these other values, Again, for me, this is fascinating. And I, again, I'm happy to go in the other direction, but this is rare. Great opportunity well, to ask questions. I'm happy either way, yeah. Does that come from your professional training? Like, did you have, uh, if, if, you know, somebody's background is, I don't know, say is in a computer science or software engineering, and they had a mentor who really uh, describes good values. And they, even when you're under stress around you, you think back to that mentor. Was it something like some people, or some people think back to their family? or they speak bad thing back to like, I don't know, a, a partner or someone. What was the basis that allowed you or encouraged you to have that, that attitude? <laughs> Call it bad attitude. I mean, the people that have bad attitude don't think of it as bad. Nobody wakes up in the morning. Throughout my career at Google, I had two enemies, which I, I simply realized were my enemies when I realized that there were so many shots from the back, right? And so I turned around and I really sat with them and I said, what did I do wrong? Why can I not work with you? And eventually one of them apologized and said, I have no idea why I marked you as the enemy. And we continued to work well together and we became best friends. The other sadly didn't and actually really, really harmed me. And you know how they always say that the worst enemy is one that pretends to be your friend. The fences are down completely. But anyway, I mean, eventually I sort of forgave her in my heart, but openly everyone knows that she was very hurtful to me in, in many ways. But both of them, without exception, believed they were doing the right thing. They completely believed in their hearts that they were actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. So the other person, that, that woman who wouldn't change after you discussed, did she feel that her career was really important? She would be great if she could be over you? Or rather, because I'm guessing sometimes she might disagree with you, but that's, that's not being malicious. Malicious is, like you said, pretending one thing or bad mouth thing. Yeah, so that person was a person in my team. I didn't believe she was performing to the level she should perform. I had a very open conversation with her that she wasn't performing that way and that I was very willing to help and support her to succeed. She, in her mind, really cared about her role and believed that I was trying to fire her. And as a result, instead of trying to improve her performance, she tried to destroy my position. It, yeah. it sounds good that because you were honest before, a lot of other people would know, wait, everything uh, about Mo seems sensible. If they didn't know you and somebody hears bad things, they say, oh, maybe that person's bad. But if they've actually known you, they say, well, that's not reasonable. You know, what does he have to yeah, say? But when that was happening, David, that was around the time when I lost my son. And so there was a, a nice story to tell by saying, oh, Mo is not himself anymore. He's not able to detach from the emotional side of things and so on. And it's an interesting tactic in many ways. Basically, trying to protect yourself seems to be the right thing. And this is different in the corporate world on the personal life. I mean, in reality, if you find one of the books I'm writing is called Finding Love. And Finding Love is, on one side, I believe that relationships, love and relationships are one of the reasons, the biggest reasons for unhappiness in the world. So there is a need for that book if we want to increase people's happiness. But on the other hand, I believe that most of the books out there are simply telling you how to hack the system. 
How do you take a woman to bed without really committing anything? How do you find this uh, if you're trying to date a man and so on and so forth? And there are tricks that are not that complicated to learn that unfortunately everyone is using on everyone. So the dating scene is not much more honest than the corporate scene, if you want. But everyone justifies them for that for themselves. Everyone goes like, yeah, look, I am out there. I'm looking to have a few experiences. So here are the techniques that I should use to, to achieve that. And interestingly, when you look at that in the corporate world, what is defined when you have a mentor, what is defined as success? Success is your career. It's not the success of the company you're working in. It's not the impact that this company has on the world. If you have a successful career, then your mentor succeeded. So many mentors will give you the shortcuts. In a sense, they're being helpful. This is really nice because this explains the difference between a tiny company when the metric of success is clearly having the company survive when it's three people or five people. Everybody is facing outward. There's no thought of, whoa, I'm going to be promoted from assistant, uh, I don't know, business manager to main business manager and the company folds. Yeah. Everybody has their goal. What a sad transition that must be because in a large organization, you can get by with just being promoted. The company has so much momentum, especially if it has special sweetheart deals or a lock on the market. The thing that, you know, they always say there's a great deal of ruin, R-U-I-N, in a country. Something like the Royal Navy, Britain's Royal Navy, in the late 1800s, it could have really incompetent admirals. It'd still be very good. Or like the American Army now can have time servers rising up and there's so much momentum from it. It's hard to destroy it. So I guess a a large company can have that. Oh yeah, large companies are really interesting in that way because basically the entire objective changes. When I worked at Google, Eric Schmidt used to say that we were very worried about becoming big and boring, but it's the way a company will always be. I mean, there. when I joined Google, I think we were making like $8 billion and mostly accounting for them on Excel, believe it or not, you know? And then there would be a time where you have to get the guardrail builders, you know, the people that say, hey, you know what, we need to protect what we have, we need to do it this way. And then the entire company becomes about how do you conform rather than how do you innovate? How do you be part of that system rather than build the system? And, and, and then it becomes people with people. Yes. And then the amazing question is, it still survives. So a large organization, which has people burrowing within to try to get to a slightly higher burrow within it, like you think of a great ant's nest or a termite uh, uh, castle, people, they're just trying to move up, but yet somehow either the company is so strong from before or inadvertently they do some successful stuff that it, it doesn't collapse right away. Yeah, but it doesn't become the same place. So normally what ends up happening, and I've seen that happen many times, is that because of the time I spent at Google X where companies, not companies, but let's call them projects, would be started by a group of people that rarely ever are the ones that take it to scale because they're different people. Those people who know how to start a business are not the people that know how to scale it. You get different people with different values, with different mindsets, and together, those new people build a different company. I always say that I loved the Microsoft I joined. I didn't like the Microsoft I left very much. I think Satya now is doing an amazing job, but the Microsoft I left in 2006 was really a jungle. You, you couldn't find your path. People left, and they left for the same reason. Absolutely. And, they liked it. and the trauma was really strong yeah. because they had come in with a much more positive view. 
Absolutely, absolutely. It was a great company, despite what the world was talking about Microsoft when I joined. The truth is, yeah, the reason why you have technology in your hands today is because of partially because of Microsoft, right? And similarly with Google, similarly with everywhere, it, it keeps changing. Can we talk about you at all? Because, you know... We can if you want. Can, can I just ask one more question? <laughs> ask anything you want. <laughs> honestly, I, I've been... You know what it's like. You have a book, thing come out, you get interviewed all the time. I'm very delighted to, but you have more contact. So I, I can think, and what I know about the real world is at secondhand. You can think, and what you know about the real world is at firsthand. Sometimes, from what you said, maybe a little bit too much for too much, yeah. <laughs> um, a little bit of distance, and that's fascinating. Okay, I will now respond to your lead. All right. So I have no idea how you choose the projects that you work on. So EMC Squared, which was a bestseller as as well, right? The Secret House, my favorite. Can nice guys finish first? And the Art of Fairness. In my mind, maybe the last two have a bit in common between them, but you're all over the place, okay? You also studied physics, which uh, is really not the topic you're writing about, if I could say. You studied history, which I know you use a lot in your work, but how did you end up here? Who are you? Why did you, <laughs> why did you become what you became? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny when you summarize something like to an outsider or a young person, you can always make a logic. And in fact, there is a logic. One thing, you know, led to another. But of course, that's looking backwards. Looking forward, we're always surprised. I tell a story about my career, how I became a writer, and one book led to another. But occasionally, I get a raw document that reminds me how different reality is. So I'm 65 now. And a while ago, I was looking through some old boxes. And I found a letter from when I was 27, a little note that I wrote for myself. I was living in France then, and I occasionally came to London for who, business. Who does that? Who lives in France for a decade? Like, what, oh, what? well, she had long red hair down to her waist. What was I going to do? Say no? <laughs> okay. Good but reason. Anyway, so I looked at this document when I was 27. It was full of all sorts of directions and things to try, which never panned out. And um, it, it just reminded me, it's uh, it, like, you know, if you hold your 10 fingers up, Later, we realize we follow one finger, say the index finger on the right hand, but all the other ones are paths that you try. Sort of like those, um, you know, those fungal uh, creatures that live deep mm. underground. They hydrostatically push forward uh, different uh, fungal tips and the ones that get rewarded, you know, expand and the others ones gets crushed. And I suppose for an interesting career, you sort of have to be a little bit psychopathic and being willing to just forego the ones that, that fail, you know, not dwell on it too much. You know, they often say in business, you can make a mistake, but make it quickly. And in the same way here, you can, you have to remember things, but not for too long. It's mm. not the same uh, forgiving in your heart, but a little bit. Oh, I remember the final question I was going to ask you, which might tie in with this. So I'm happy to continue on my trajectory, but just so I don't forget, what you were talking about that transition in business from when you're facing outward and you're sharing a task to later when it gets above a certain size, that people tend to be facing inward and into their own individual promotion. I just wonder, We again, we can park this for now, how much that matches one's own personality as one gets older. As one goes along in life, how much is like, oh, I'm a nervous teenager facing outward. I totally depend on what people think about me versus, oh, I'm facing inward and I have certain standards in my head, especially if one's insulated by money, which might not be directly linked with the outside world. I'll answer quickly, but then we go back to you and then we talk about it in detail. I think we become more of who we really are the older we become. And if you're a, a selfish, self-centered, egocentric, money-driven, don't care about the impact on the world kind of person, 
the older you become, the more you're likely you're going to become more of that for several reasons. One of which is that you acquire the skills to do that. You see that you're sort of developing yourself to be so good at it. So it becomes your natural tendency. And the other way around is also true. If you're, if you're constantly driven by making a difference, being fair, being honest, and your experiences in life is that others have been unfair to you and you felt how that was and you didn't want to put that on others and so on, you become better at it. You become better at surviving and succeeding using those skills. And so you become more of that as you become older, unless some wake up call happens and some people turn around, but mostly either way, by the way, either direction, some people will wake up and say, you know, I've been trying to be ethical for my whole life and then it's not working. So screw it. I'm going to just be the, the biggest criminal out there or the other way around. Okay. And I think people become very mechanical and in terms of being true to those skills that they've acquired, uh, the older they become. There's reinforcement. There's reinforcement. It reminds me a little bit, the one proviso that at least from my experience, see, I'm very gently segueing back uh, from. I was going to get you there anyway. (laughs) Sometimes one's aware, many of us have a main personality, but we have other parts of our personality. Or we, we can flip, we can be, yeah. we want to be tempered, but occasionally we're bad tempered. And sometimes people know that if they have a certain setting or a certain partner, that one will keep them out of the several possibilities in our, in our soul, in our personality, some partners will encourage the good rather than others. Yeah. We often think about that with, uh, with friends or with teenagers. I want you not to hang out with those, with those kids because yeah. they will bring out your worst parts while these others will bring out the good. And so I can imagine somebody who feels they have a potential for a really bad temper. Well, the American president, Eisenhower, the one who did D-Day in 1944 and then was the U.S. president and stuff, who kept the peace during the peak of the Cold War. He had a ferocious temper. He had a Mm. really bad temper. When he was at West Point as a cadet, he was the most vicious boxer uh, there. He played a middle linebacker on the football team. He was really a killer. And he, he didn't like that temper. And he said his greatest uh, pride when he uh, was an old man wasn't creating huge national parks in America or expanding education or even helping win World War II. It was controlling his temper. And he tried to surround himself with people who would discourage him from the temper coming up. So he was Mm. like a dis tying himself to the mast, knowing he was going to be carried away by certain things and taking action quietly in advance. That's why they say Philip Bobbitt, the theorist of international relations, says a country should inoculate itself with laws in advance before catastrophes like a coronavirus or uh, uh, big national disasters or military failures uh, happen. So it's sort of like a company making contingency plans quietly and in advance. Mm, I think that's absolutely true. And in your case, did you have any of those? Did you have people that got you to follow certain tracks? It was difficult. So some of me is is very, very cautious. I'd always, so uh, I ended up in Paris just just hitchhiking. I, I grew up in the American Midwest. I was 21. I was in Paris didn't have any cash. And I, I got a job as a helping out at a newspaper, like as a copy boy. And I ended up uh, doing some writing for that paper. And then when I was going to quit that to try to write books, which I was interested in, I was, I felt really old. I think I was 22 at that time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this question, I worked out as a kid, you don't, you don't have high outgoings, but I made sure that the newspaper I'd been at before would cover a certain number of freelance articles a year. I thought if they covered 50% of my income, then I didn't have to really worry that much. I could either do other freelance pieces or get into books or uh, whatever it was. So there was always a little bit of caution. So that was one thing. On the other hand, there was a part of me that had, uh, looking back at it, had a great deal of trust, especially compared with the, uh, with the millennials, you know, with the young people today. 
And I think that trust came for two reasons. One is I came of age in 1960s uh, Chicago when that 30 years, uh, what the French called the glorious 30 years after World War II, were in their peak. If you, mm. um, you didn't have a job, you could walk down the street. And if you went to 5, 10, 15, 20 shops or factories, you would get a job. might not be a mm. great job. Unemployment was really low. So there was a feeling you didn't have to worry. Uh, kids graduating university didn't have to think, oh, what job is I, am I going to get? There was an assumption you could travel to some city, New York, San Francisco, or Atlanta, whatever it was, and there would be some decent job going. So it was never a worry in this way that before the coronavirus, people didn't think that much of going into a potentially infected zone, unless it was like a dangerous hospital. You just, it never crossed your mind. So that was one reason I think that gave me confidence several times in my life to drop what I was doing and and get, get into a book I was interested in or, or shift topic, uh, you know, shift direction, 190 degrees or 180 degrees. The other one is I grew up in a big family. My parents had a girl and another girl and another girl and another girl and another girl. Then they had me. And then my mm. mother went down, you know, you want another one to do it yourself. <laughs> I was the boy. I was the, the, the boy chick, the little baby in the family and stuff. And so it meant that it was a little bit of a sexist environment. I mean, my, my parents were really uh, good and as much as they could be fair to the sisters, my big sisters, and they really treated well. But I think there was a certain feeling in my direction that, oh, he's a special boy. Mm. And um, so you just kind of grow up with that. It was just kind of a default assumption, which can lead to arrogance, but it can also lead to a sort of confidence. There's a book by a woman who I don't like as a person, but I really like as a, as a sort of a, a popular thinker. It's a, it's a strange mix. Her name is Amy Chow, C-H-U-A, from uh, Yale. She's at the law school there. And she wrote a book about how different uh, ethnic groups that are famous for their success around the world, overseas Chinese and Jewish people and Armenians and Jamaicans in America and, and a bunch of others who not always, but often do well, she herself is overseas Chinese. What's going on? What's the little trick, if there's a trick? And mm. she came up with three things in a book she wrote about this, which those groups tend to have. One might even say some expat Egyptian intellectuals have mm. been known for their, their abilities around the world. So I, I can only speak for some of the groups that I know. And she said, after her research and interviews, one is a sort of a confidence, what I was saying earlier in my family yeah. position, a feeling that, you know, when push comes to shove, we're pretty good. You mm. know, it's like you ask almost any somebody from the overseas Chinese community or Nigerians in Britain and say, when it comes to really hard work and pulling all-nighters, can you do it? And they say, you don't have to worry, we can do it. Or that we have exceptional skills, you know, it's like, oh, we can really think hard. So one is, a, is great confidence. The second one is an, a realization or a belief that everything can be destroyed in a second. The overseas Chinese can do really well in the Pacific, and then the mobs can turn against them. The Armenians, God forbid, et cetera, et cetera. So that a mixture of great belief that, you know, you can be really good, and also this trepidation that it can all uh, fall apart. And then the third thing she, she mentioned was a, a work ethic. You mm -hmm. need at least a work ethic. We know mm -hmm. a lot of uh, bright and or insecure, say, trustafarians, rich kids, who don't have a work ethic and just can't do much except by chance. And I think her suggestion in the book is that if you have two out of those three, it's not enough. If you have real confidence and a work ethic, that's good, but it's not as much as somebody who has that also. And that extra thing thinking, you know what? I mean, Andy Groh's famous line at Intel, only the paranoid survive. And it's, if you're only paranoid, that's no good. You're critical, you're negative. You, we know those famous people who suck oxygen out of the air. And if you're only positive, that's no good. But I, I love the idea of that mix. That I think I wasn't aware of the book when I was young. I mean, she, she hadn't written it. But I think some of that applied to me in my 20s. I had this feeling that, you know what, when I got going with my friends and started telling a good story, it was going to be a good story. So that was a motivation that the quality would be good. 
And then, but also knowing things could fall apart. I didn't have working papers. I was living illegally in France. I love that I was, my only job, I was an illegally paid immigrant. I think there, I, I shouldn't have people running for, for the, the head of the French uh, state now about that. But I believe there's a statute of limitation. It was 45 years ago. There was something else, something more important. A lot of people have ambition, you know, the famous Nike slogan, go for it. But it's unclear what that ambition is for, what direction it's aiming for. Now, John F. Kennedy's father used to always tell his kids, do it, go, you have to succeed. But he wouldn't say in what direction. For him, mm. it ended up in your money with, with the father, and it was kind of money and sensual satisfaction. He had a million affairs with people he didn't respect. There was nothing to it. It was a meaningless life. My father passed away when I was 10 years old, and that was really significant for me. And so a lot of what I've done is trying to find things that survive. I sometimes like to imagine I didn't get to know him as a grown-up, but I could imagine that he looked at certain things in the sky or thinking about them or mathematics, and I now can look at those things. And we form sort of a, a triangle that he and I are side by side, not looking at each other, and we can look together. We can aim and see something up there. So it gives me a great desire to, um, to find things that are meaningful and that last, and you ask, what's the commonality in these books that seem so different? A book about the Enlightenment. I wrote a book about a woman who lived with Voltaire, a book about equals MC squared, you know, these things, books about ethics. And a friend of mine who, who knows me pretty well said, David, you like looking at hidden parallel worlds, which are under our world and connect everything. And I thought, you know what? That's kind of true. There's mm -hmm. this feeling that the fundament of our uh, physical universe, uh, speaking in a secular fashion, it's kind of, to some extent, the laws of physics and or math, I'd say mostly physics. And the outer limit of what astrophysicists can see and understand, it's feeling that's it's pervading us and also understanding the, the nature of mass and energy around us or the probabilities and stuff with quantum mechanics. That's a pervasive, invisible thing that's just under the surface. And we're like a surface manifestation of it, even without realizing it. That early book I wrote way back in my, uh, I think it was around 30, The Secret House, was looking at invisible things around us inside a house, things that permeate and surround us, but that we're oblivious to. Like mm. we're giant monsters like Gulliver from Gulliver's Travels in the land of the little people. And we don't see what's going on down there, but it's really important for us. I'm going to return to that in some future books. And then the, the ethical ones, the ones about the art of fairness, we know you can succeed by being a jerk and lying because there's many examples in business or being a bully. We also know that being merely nice doesn't work. The famous phrase, nice guys finish last. I think that's true. If you're merely nice and let everybody walk over you, nothing happens. And what I love is finding there's a line in between. There's a line in between where you're not too soft, but you're not a bully and jerk. You need a certain amount of street smarts. It's fair but firm is that, mm. is that line in between. Like you said, when you had to tell somebody with a project, it's a good, fair project. You've worked on it. This other one is either better or more appropriate, and you'll need to make following improvements to do better. I'm not saying you're a terrible person, but I'm, I'm not going to be swayed simply because you beg for it to go ahead. So that middle line, it's not a soft line, but it's not a bullying line. It's a, it's a fair but firm line. Then it's really, really hard to do. But I, I'm struck that that also pervades almost everything. Aristotle talked about the golden mean, you know, that line in between. Mm -hmm. Almost all the great religions talk about it. The reason all the great religions talk about it is nobody listens. They have to repeat all the things. <laughs> yeah. Guys, did you hear us say this? Did you hear us say this? Yeah, and the truth is, yes, we hear and we nod up and down, but we do bugger all about it. This is what I really want to dig deep. So I actually see that now that you say it, looking for the hidden parts of some things that seem to be very obvious. And I want, I want to talk about why 
why has our world turned so mean? I mean, in reality, I mean, I'm a very forgiving and loving man. And I, you know, I smile at the world all the time and I laugh at the stupidity of humanity sometimes, right? But it is clear to me that I think everything is, is reaching scale, even the level of how mean we've become, right? It seems to me in my last startup, one of the, the things that I, I normally use the same technique that Google used when we had the 10 things to, we know to be true. So the, you know, we had the things, the principles that we live by were, you know, the things we know to be true today, if you want. And one of them was that legal is not always ethical. And it seems to me that the world has forgotten that. I think more and more people are now so interested in finding the shortcut, even though if you were treated that way, you wouldn't like it. Which to me is really the, the simple guideline of what ethical is. Uh, the simple guideline is if you wouldn't like to be treated that way, then it's very probable that others would, will not want to be treated that way too. And again, the great religions have said that for thousands Absolutely. of years. Every spiritual teaching, and I studied quite a few of them. And, and every holy book. So why? Why do you think our world is becoming meaner and meaner and meaner? What, what is the driving force behind this? There's a little bit of distortion of where we're sitting, the famous foreshortening. You see things around you very, very strongly. So one advantage, I suppose, of a historian's perspective is that the world is without question really mean now. A lot of things are just mean and bullies are become popular. And it would, but the thing is, it was really bad before. In the 1930s, a lot of people had terrible lives because there was this publicly encouraged bullying and attacks on all sorts of people. There was a real lot of uh, horrible hatred in the early 1960s in China with the uh, Cultural Revolution and stuff. It was really terrible. Kids were encouraged to beat up and attack their school teachers and their, uh, and their parents, and millions did. So there have been really a lot of terrible times. So we're living in one of these times now. And the, the, the explanations, which everybody talks about, I agree with, and, and we're familiar with those. Social media encourages this, and we can bring out the worst, and there's, there's loud voices that try to find the worst aspects of the people who disagree with us and, and try to give the impression that that, that covers everybody. So I, I agree with you, there, there's things boosting it now. A minor consolation is that there's been a real lot of that before. I don't know if it's worse now. Certainly, we can see it a lot now, and anger has more outlets. Of some people, Jaron Lanier wrote that book, stops, get off social media right away. And a lot of people anecdotally who do that in their personal life, they say, oh, they've turned off the noise. It's just a little bit quieter. And the people around them, the people they know face to face are not so terrible. Mm. I had that experience the day before yesterday. I'm not sure if you've seen uh, Death to 2020. It was a, a funny, dark comedy, if you want, on Netflix that was documenting 2020 and COVID-19 and so on, which wasn't horrible, I would say. And then they have now Death to 2021, which I have to say is also not horrible. It's funny, but I had not been watching the media and the news at all. So I, I literally am not even part of that stupid noise anymore because it doesn't really affect my life. So I don't put any time in it. And I watched this and it really affected my heart. It really hurt me. Trivial things uh, emphasized, elaborated? No, no, it's just, I don't know if you've ever remember there was a, a movie called The Fifth Element. I love that movie where she theoretically, uh, not from our world, eventually looks at at the entire history of humanity and how violent the history of humanity is. And she breaks down completely 
because she saw it in such a condensed format in a few minutes or a few hours, right? And I think that's what happened to me a couple of days ago. I, lo I looked at all that happened in 2021 and there is a lot. I mean, there was a lot of wonderful things. As I always say, there must be many more people that kissed than people that hit each other. Right. And that's the absolute truth of our world. And sadly, the, the news media covers the people that hit each other. And so we think that this is the pervasive thing. But having seen it in such a short time and having realized that the leaders of our world are so much more on that meanness side of things, they're always looking for the shortcuts. They're always playing politics. They're always wasting humanity's resources on honestly stupid publicity stunts, like the number of rockets that went into space when so many people are starving in Africa. And it just, when you see all of it in a short period of time, you sort of like, you know, it gets to your heart. And I started questioning why, once again, why? Why is it that when you become a billionaire, you send a stupid rocket into space instead of actually looking on earth and saying, here are a few things I can do to make this place better. I suppose there's, there's a couple of things there. Sometimes people, Aristotle said that rich people think they're smart because smart people sit at their feet. You know, I don't know if you've ever gone to some of these uh, meetings that super rich people have, they'll fly you in first class and everybody's nice. And if you say something that's negative, you're not invited back or you go. So some of it is they literally don't know. The other one is that notion of suboptimal peaks from a fitness in fitness space from actually that's more precious. Think of when you're climbing up a mountain, there's a mountain and you can be kind of at a hill, which is nowhere near the peak of the mountain. But when you're on a little hill, it seems to be the peak. Everything around you seems lower. So you, you feel you're at a good point. You don't actually see the wider perspective. So what you said about the golden rule, even some of these terrible people, if they saw the immediate consequences of what they were doing right in front of them, they would hopefully, most of them would be a decent person, but they don't see it right in front of them. They're surrounded with people sitting at their feet or they're surrounded in this little realm. And the other thing is, maybe that thing is about the local peaks, the small hill versus the big mountain. It's also, it gives you a clear task. You, you said we get taught as, as we move on in age, we develop our tools. Well, Isaac Newton is an example. He was about as smart as a person could be. By the way, he lost about a third of his money in a stock market bubble. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So even Newton. Anyways, when he was young, he spent a real lot of time just scribbling in notebooks. And he, what came out was magnificent stuff, the creation of modern science. When he was older and he lost his creativity, he still spent his time scribbling in notebooks. And it really didn't build up to much. But that's all he knew how to do. So if somebody's mm -hmm. really into engineering, which has like a big wow factor, or they're into earning more money and they're good at it, unless they're willing to step back, you know, the famous phrase, one step back for two steps forward, or one step back for shifting direction. They don't want to shift direction. They don't want to go in anything they're uncomfortable with. So they'll do more of the same. And also mm -hmm. sometimes at that level, you're surrounded by people. There's been a sieving function, S-I-E-V, sieving. The people who will be at those high levels are often not the ones who decided a little bit earlier, you know what, I have enough maybe financial success or uh, social success. I'm going to live in a nice place and be with my friends or maybe help the environment around me. I'm not going to stay with this group of runners. So the people who are running in this direction, the billionaires with the rockets and stuff, there's been a, a selection. The people who could have helped and reminded them, we were talking earlier about how a good spouse can remind you of decent things. They're not surrounded by those people. So they're 
there nobody reminds them of the golden rule, plus they don't actually see the individuals that are being harmed. It's just that a sensation of more, more, more. Uh, some philosophers like Unamuno, the uh, a Spanish guy of a century ago, he would say it's all fear of death. Uh, so Jeff Bezos, I met him socially in, in, in groups two times, perfectly normal person. He works out like mad. Well, the thing is, you can work out and make your body as buff as you want. You're still going to get old and wrinkly and die. Uh, it doesn't mean you should become like a, I don't know, terrible slob unless you wish to. But it's really weird. It's who was the guy who founded CNN? He was married to Jane Fonda. Ted Turner. Turner. Yes. Yeah. So Jane Fonda in one of her memoirs said that when she was married to Ted Turner, he traveled all the time. He had a very short attention span and he had like five houses, 10 houses, and they would move from house to house, you know, just a few weeks in a place. And the thing is, if you don't know what to do, if you can't fill up your time, and also if you're terrified to face yourself, Ted Turner, apparently, at least according to her, was really scared to be on his own. He always needed somebody around to be able to talk to or speak to or, or see him and stuff. And it's scary facing yourself. Exactly, exactly. Just privately. Michael Jackson, remember, and near the end of his life, he could only go to sleep by having a, a general anesthetic in, injected. He couldn't have that quiet time about facing himself. There was some issues about what he saw. Well, racing from house to house, it gives you a task to do. Oh, I got to be busy. I got to pack. I got to think of the color plan for the new one. I got to speak to the servants. I got to arrange the jets and the car and this and that. It gives you a task, but these are meaningless tasks. They go over and over, and then eventually you wrinkle and die. But in the short term, it keeps you from higher reflection. Why are tasks like, I'm going to put a billion dollars into helping people out, not part of those tasks that can keep us busy? Well, what's nice is that there are some sets. There are some large subsets of the world which do appreciate that, and that's great. So Bill Gates famously, when he met Melissa, she and other things encouraged him to be really generous with his money. I mean, it helped that his family in the Pacific Northwest had an ethic of service. You know, his father was not just a corporate lawyer, but a corporate lawyer with a bit of a conscience. And it was like, you know, you give back to the community. Seattle and those areas, they weren't that far from the frontier uh, attitude, which was clearly terribly unfair to the Native Americans there. But there was an ethos of pulling it together, not being above your station. They looked down on the East Coast snobbery with the suits and the private schools and all that sort of stuff. So there's some worlds, like the world of the Gates Foundation, which really respects that. Yeah, get a decent income, but above a certain level, no, what counts more is the satisfaction. And again, the I sort of teased earlier when I said the great religions have these beautiful lines that people don't follow, but I'll modify that. The great religions have beautiful lines, which sometimes people do follow. There's a great tradition. There's a number of people in the uh, Hindu faith who, when they reach a certain age, feel it's important, maybe not to go to the forest and live like a hermit, or but to give back and to give back really substantially. Carnegie was a cruel uh, capitalist in the late 1800s in America, but he genuinely gave back to libraries, some of which several generations later, I, an ordinary boy in Chicago, benefited from. So the TED crowd, people sometimes make fun of TED Talks as being mannered and all very similar. Sometimes that happens, but the ideal behind uh, that world is a lot better than the ideal behind, uh, say, little fascist meetings and stuff. The ideal is, you know, let's see how we can make a green things happen, you know, with a profit because we're sensible and live in the real world, or let's see how we can make uh, charities and benevolent activities work. So there are lots of terrible people and probably in the public life, maybe the majority, but there's these subsets that I find very encouraging. What I loved in the Art of Fairness book was showing that there were times when they won. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk about that. The Art of Fairness basically says 
yes, you can go through life taking the squiggly path and really trying to trick everyone into whatever it is that you believe in and then get become successful. And I have seen many around me who did that, but I can promise you they looked over their shoulders 24 hours a day. Totally. Harvey Weinstein, he knew that everybody hated his guts. He had power and he was terrifying. He actually physically, he was a big thug of a guy. He was disgusting. But you remember when he went down, there was nobody who helped. Even his own brother turned against him and said, oh, Harvey was a terrible man. If only I had known, blah, blah, blah. Mm. His own brother. You know, it seems to be an amazing life, but it isn't. And it, it because it isn't that, as you rightly said, it drives people to do more and more and more of that. And I know, I know many because, you know, people, you sort of attract people who are like you. I know many who were honest and decent and, you know, transparent and, and respectful and wanted good for people, wanted good for the planet and so on. And I've seen success stories. I've seen people who I can't remember. Are you old enough to have met John Warnock from Adobe? Did you? Open I have not. Book? No, no, no. John Warnock, you know, he helped create Adobe, a PDF, uh, the mm. portable digital file. That's mm. uh, his thing. Adobe was a big company. He created, I don't know, a billion dollar company. He was one of the people who gave me the idea for the book. Mm. I was at a, a conference a bit over 20 years ago, and he was there and speaking. And, and he was a nice, he was a fair guy, not softy, but he was really reasonable. He was polite to people, he was kind with his wife. Sometimes his executives would have to come up and, and brief him about something. You know, he would give him the time of day, listen, you know, make decent comments, but he wouldn't show off or thrust his weight around. At the exact same conference, there was a famous guy from Wall Street who mm. um, was a thug. I was in the green room as a speaker along with him. And when he was out on stage, he would speak nicely or politely. But I remember he came off stage and there was a woman, a young woman who was doing her PhD on a topic related to some of his professional work. And he said, oh, she said, I'm, I'm so honored. Do you have a moment? And he not only did he say, oh, I'm a bit busy, which anybody's allowed to say, he looked at her with scorn and he used these horribly abusive, uh, foul uh, uh, swear words uh, at her, you, hmm, so-and-so, so-and-so, how dare you? And he just nodded for his bodyguards to push her to the side and stuff. And he was like that with everybody, except mm. to one or two people that he could suck up to. And I remember thinking, so this guy is rich, maybe has a hundred million dollars. Warnock has a billion dollars. And it's mm. like, wow. So you, you can succeed if the, by monetary success, like that horrible Wall Street guy, and you can succeed like Warnock. I and mean, there's even some people in Wall Street who are quite reasonable. And Warnock was a really decent guy. And there's advantages to the decent approach. You said earlier that the way you were when you were at Google, people could share with you, say, you know, Mo, you can talk to. He's not going to jump on you. And he's going to either tell you the truth or tell you that he can't uh, talk about it. And so a decent person, they get good information flow. A decent person, they get gratitude. Someone like Harvey Weinstein, what did he get back? He got resentment all mm -hmm. the time. Decent person, John Warnock, gets gratitude. You know, Franklin Roosevelt, the American president, he got gratitude from a lot of people. And then also, if you're not that close and hostile towards the world, if you're not looking nervously that everybody's going to attack you, you can sometimes learn from the outside world. You can get alliances. You can learn from what's outside. Compare a Balmer versus Nadella when it comes to learning from groups outside of Microsoft. I mean, there's just, there's just no connection doesn't mean Nadella opens all the gates and lets uh, Microsoft be taken advantage of. You know, it's a powerful company with lawyers and you know, all the stuff. I don't have to tell you. But it means like, you know, there's smart people out there. What can we learn? Can we do joint ventures? Can we connect? You know, what can we learn? So what is fairness in your definition? If that's, there are many ways you can say that a leader is fair, right? What is your definition? See, that tormented, that was one reason it took me so long to write the book. Because at the beginning, <laughs> I tried to go into details about it. And I looked at like, lines where it's uh, ambiguous. So I suppose what I'll say is there's some areas where it's ambiguous. 
there's, you know, the short term versus the long term is very hard to work out. There's no single right answer. But there's large domains where almost everybody would kind of agree. If you can become successful in Hollywood, like Steven Spielberg, who made a range of movies, you know, some silly movies, some excellent movies, and people don't have a bad word to say about him. He's never up for sexual harassment, even though he's a very powerful man. He seems to have been, maybe has a bit of a temper, but not a terrible temper. It's fair. People often want to work with him again. You can either rise up like Steven Spielberg, or you can rise up like Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein was a very skilled producer. He made excellent films. He got bundles together. He was just horrible along the way. Is this good that he's in prison, hopefully uh, for life? So many people will understand, wow, there's something about the way Spielberg did it. And there's something about the way Weinstein did it. I want to do it the way Spielberg did. And these are things that are hard to specify in just two or three little statements, like those books at the airport, the, the three golden rules about this and that. So that's why I did it in case studies. I just... I didn't actually go into Spielberg, the woman who was the producer of Game of Thrones in the media world. I did her. And she was totally reasonable, big budget stuff. And she was emulable. I suppose if I was trying to analyze closer, I'd come back to what you said earlier about the golden rule. If you've been fired yourself, nobody likes it. We always say, oh, I wish they said it differently. But later, after the, uh, the feeling of being hurt has worn off a bit, if you think, you know what? If the situation were reversed and I were in the position of, of power, and I saw this person who was you know, performing this way and given my budget, it might be fair for me to be fired. Maybe I wasn't a good fit for the job, or maybe they were downsizing and stuff. So if you feel that if things were reversed, it would be okay. Then it was fair. Then it was fair. Yeah, yeah I, I like that. And I, I think that's really the easy rule of everything, if you think about it. It's, you know, if I was in the other person's position, would I think that I treated me well, right? Or could I have treated me better? And in your analysis, what makes fair people succeed? So how can we convince someone that fairness is also a position of power? Yeah. So there I would I would just recap some of the things that we mentioned earlier. Being a jerk gives you great powers. Bullying will often terrify people and you can get things done. Being a Machiavellian means that even if you don't have skills, you can make other people look worse, right? And fairness, however, has its own strengths. If you're fair, if you listen without ego, if you're willing to give other people the chance to communicate, then you get information which the bully never gets. If you're willing to be give somebody generosity rather than just give them bossy orders and stuff, you get gratitude coming back rather than resentment. And that's wonderful. So think of somebody who gets better information flow around them and gets organisms on the outside being willing to help them spontaneously. That's mm -hmm. terrific. Mm -hmm. And only the decent or fair person will get that. And mm -hmm. the same thing, you have to defend yourself against the outside world. You need auditors, right. lawyers. You have to make sure that the jerks, we have doors with locks for good reasons. But if you become obsessed by it, if you focus only on that, there's no chance of learning from everybody else around you. And from our own perspective, we can sometimes imagine it. But just think, as somebody else, they're thinking, I'm not going to learn from David or Mo. I'm not going to learn a word from them. And you think, well, that kind of doesn't make sense because we might have things to offer them. Mm. So these are strengths that the decent approach has. You get better information flow. You get gratitude. You can, you can learn from the outside world, get alliances and connections. People can be on your side. And in the book, I talk about FDR grading, getting those great advantages. Germany of the Third Reich, you know, not getting those advantages. In addition, for success there you have to have a certain drive. And that comes, I don't know what it comes from, either family attitudes or maybe some distorted psyche, whatever it is. Because these three main tools about the listening and the, the giving sensibly and the defending without over-defending, you can do that and you can stabilize at any level. 
You could be a high school teacher, which is great. If you saw the film uh, Mr. Holland's Opus with Richard Dreyfuss, he's a high school music teacher who at first is really upset. I don't want to be a high school music teacher. I want to do these other stuff. And by the end of his career, he realizes this was a beautiful thing. So some people can be do it at that level. Other people say, you know what? I want to run a division. Other people say, I want to create a whole new industry. Gordon Moore from uh, Moore's Law. He was a really reasonable, decent guy. He helped create Intel. Wasn't a perfect company, but it was a good company. It was quite successful. And he was, he was really decent about it. In the way that you said, people would share, you know, when Mo comes around, I can tell him the truth. Same thing with Gordon Moore. Mm-hmm. So there's, and he wanted to create a big thing. He helped create the modern computer industry. Oh, totally. It's interesting that you use those examples because so in the Islamic culture where I, where I grew up, there is a, a saying by Prophet Muhammad that says, everyone is a leader in their domain. A father is a leader with his children and a, a wife is a leader in her home and, you know, and so on, right? So everyone is a leader in their own domain. And I, I think that really is quite interesting because the art of decency, the art of fairness, if you want, is something that I think now is needed more than ever. In, in my second book, in, in Scary Smart, when I talk about the rise of artificial intelligence and how they're learning from us, I think that idea of fairness of every one of us sort of accepting the responsibility that you are being followed somehow, you're being observed. And as you're being observed, you're affecting others. And as you're affecting others, you're making a difference. I think what you're describing is really quite interesting. I have noticed that in my personal life too, that when you are on people's side, if you want, people are on your side. You don't have to look over your shoulders. You don't have to keep fabricating your lies all the time because one lie is not perfectly aligned with the other. And it makes life quite a, a lot easier. Do you think that, that some of what you speak about is also applicable in our day-to-day life, not just the work? Oh, uh, uh, totally. Exactly what you said. If you empower other people, they might, if they're terrible, they might push you aside, which can sometimes happen. That's why you need sensible defenses. But very often, if you empower them, they're delighted. Think how benevolently and happily, proudly we think of the people who helped us, who were our mentors or helped bring out our skills. When you mentioned Islamic history, I've spent a lot of time with Shajarat, the lady who, uh, who ruled Egypt, right? During the, I think it was the fourth crusade. There were coins in her honor. There were uh, prayers uh, in her name in the great mosque and stuff. She took the King of France hostage, which is, uh, and I think she got the largest ransom ever in world history uh, to that point. And one reason she was able to run this massive empire was um, because she, she was into the hierarchy of the times, but she was really fair. She got the army on her side by not bullying them around, but by um, empowering them. The civil service worked on her side because mm. she was so reasonable for them. And she came from nothing. She was a slave girl from, um, I'm guessing, from Eastern Europe. And look what she did. It's a terrific thing coming up with no resources. In the Art of Fairness book, I talk about somebody not as great as Shajarat, but a British woman who was a, a debutante from South Kensington, London, who was a sort of an anthropologist on the frontier between India and what was then Burma, now Myanmar. And she ended up very successfully running large guerrilla groups behind Japanese lines without any weapons of her own and without any money of substantial money of her own and without any British army people there, but simply because of the decency she had towards the local tribesmen around her who respected her and chose to follow her because Mm. she was as fair and as appropriate to them as possible. And what I love is what you said, those principle about everybody should be treated fairly and have respect within their domain, the the housewife or the the guy at home or the gardener and stuff. Yes, it's within an Islamic tradition, but it's understood by people all around the world. Mm. Now, the reverse is also understood. Anger and hostility is, is a universal 
but the uh, the positive things there really are are something that can pull us together. I totally agree. I first of all, I will encourage you to not change the topic. Keep writing about this topic. This is a good topic, David. Let's keep writing about that, or bring us more interesting, you know, more diverse ideas. So, so what are you working on now? So the next book is stage two. So the art of fairness tells you that this can happen. The art of fairness, the power of decency in a world turned mean gives examples from the past, 10 interesting people, including the recent past, current day, showing that this can happen. The next book is going to be called Reset. It's about how to reset your life or your company or maybe even your country to make this, to get into that configuration that you like. And once you are decent, basically how to get into that position, how to make it happen. So we have this ideal, how do you make it happen? And we know that, well, January is a nice time to mention it. We all have goals. I, for example, I'm going to stop eating pastries. My belly is going to be incredibly flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This goal (laughs) lasts for about three weeks. And most of us know what it's like to make ambitions and dreams and hopes, and they don't last that long. Uh, Sometimes we think of a sacrifice. I'm willing to forego this, and it could be a little bit longer. And so most resets, most of the attempt to reset yourself and start again, it fails. Companies say we're going to do this way. Couples after an argument say we're going to, from now on, we'll do this way. It lasts for a little while. It doesn't last long. However, very occasionally in history, there have been resets of individuals or of companies or of entire nations that have worked. And I've decided to, uh, in my old age, closer to my eighth decade than to the start of my seventh decade, I'm doing a different style book. Normally, my books are one story and then another story and another story, you know, maybe 10 stories on, on a theme, like 10 Little Mountains after another. And instead, I'm making this more like a mystery book or a thriller. There's going to be three interwoven lines. So I'm taking three people who did resets on different levels. Uh, and they're from all over the world. One's a slender Indian woman from the 1890s. She ended up being central to one of the major resets of all time. Another's a tough American commando. Uh, another's a British politician. And I show how they went through all these similar stages and then how they either succeeded or didn't succeed. So the lessons for us will, will pour out from them. But these stories are kind of interwoven. I love that. When is this out? So first I have to finish it. I'm about 70% done. And um, I took a little bit of time off for publicity, in fact, for the fairness book. If I finish it by the uh, spring, then I'm guessing it'll be out uh, maybe mid or late 2023. Yeah, that's how the publishing industry works. You know, People are still allowed, if, they, if they're obsessed, they can still buy the Art of Fairness until then. <laughs> there you go. No problem. You're not complaining about that. I actually definitely recommend that our listeners buy the Art of Fairness. I think it's a It's a wonderful book about a topic that I believe is highly, highly, highly needed in our world today. I think one of the reasons why we do things the way we do them is because we think we're told that this is the only way to succeed. I think examples of how you can succeed big without being unfair, without treating people in ways that you wouldn't want to be treated yourself. I think that's a very strong reinforcement and endorsement to the idea of really being human. And I'll remind everyone, the very last sentence of Scary Smart, isn't it ironic that the very essence of what makes us human is what might save our world going forward? So David, I'm I'm very grateful for your time. As I said, when the technology was working against us three times in a row, I knew that this was going to be a wonderful conversation. And I think it was a wonderful conversation. You're a wonderful human being. And I think your message to the world is one of timeliness and tremendous importance. So thank you very much for being here with me today. Thank you. Thank you honestly very much.
Yeah, and for everyone listening, I think there is a, this is timely. We're still in January. It's early in the year. I know you may have already made your New Year's resolutions, but I think there is a little bit of time to addendum to them so that you can actually include fairness as part of what we do this year. I think the world needs it really, really badly. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And I hope that David's very calm approach, though very knowledgeable, may have allowed you to slow down a little bit because we're heading into a new year and I know that we'll start to rush and rush and rush and go faster and faster. And I want to remind you that it doesn't really matter how many things are on your agenda today. You can always find a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.